Before we get started today, I have a couple of admin notes I wanted to announce. First, there may or may not be an episode next week. It is spring break for the kids, and while we don't have major travel plans, we do have some minor plans that might be enough to prevent me from getting an episode finished. I should be able to drop an episode the week after that, but the rest of April looks questionable at best due to some work-related travel I have coming up. After three years of almost no travel at work due to COVID, I'm getting back on the road, which I am very happy about. It's fun to travel, but it does play havoc with one's podcast recording schedule. Additionally, I have come to the realization that after doing this podcast for going on two years now, sometimes I just need a week off here or there that might not be related to travel, so it is possible that in the future, you will hear me say that I am taking a bye week, which means that I need a little break from the schedule. I will probably continue to research and even write during those weeks, but I need a break from recording and editing. I may also need a bye week here and there because I'm going to be posting old episodes onto YouTube. A while back, someone asked why I didn't post episodes there, and after going back and forth about that for a little while, I've decided that I will. Oh, and one more thing. The podcast has new intro music. It was composed and recorded by the eldest Ghosts of Arlington Jr. If you will indulge me for a moment as I put on my proud papa hat, he has really come into his own as a musician in high school. He is the bassist for the band Overthinker, but also composes, produces, and records music on Bandcamp under the name Caladrius. I asked him if he would be willing to compose a few things for me in exchange for giving him free room and board for the last 17 years. He happily agreed. I will post links to his music in the show notes, but he did want me to add a disclaimer that if you're hoping to find more music exactly like the intro on the site, you probably won't. He's more of a metalhead and overthinker is hard rock, but he's versatile and can crank out a soothing orchestral piece when needed. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for episode 85. The First Burial at Arlington Wait a minute, you may very well be asking yourself. Wasn't episode 2 titled The First Burial at Arlington? And if you thought that, dear listener, well, you were close, but not quite right. Episode 2 was called The First Burials at Arlington, plural. And in that episode, we were talking about the first burials at Arlington, the cemetery. The burials of Private William Christman, Private William McKinney, Private William Reeves, and Private William Blatt, all buried in what is today Section 27, not too far from the cemetery entrance closest to the Marine Corps War Memorial, 
in Arlington Bridge Park. Today, we are going to take a closer look at the first person that we know of to have been buried at the Arlington Plantation, 40 years before it became a national cemetery. The oldest grave at Arlington belongs to a woman who was well known as the Martha Stewart or Rachel Ray of her day, Mary Randolph. Today's podcast will be shorter than most. Mary's life has not been widely documented, but from the first time that I walked past her grave, I have wanted to know more about her. In 1929, as the Lee Mansion, today known as Arlington House, was undergoing renovations, a short, four-walled brick enclosure was uncovered in the undergrowth about 100 feet, or 30 meters, north of the building being renovated. The word sacred was carved at the top of the flat headstone, and the marker's inscription read, In the memory of Mrs. Mary Randolph. Her intrinsic worth needs no eulogium. The deceased was born 9th of August, 1762 at Amp Hill, near Richmond, Virginia, and died the 23rd of January, 1828, in Washington City, a victim to maternal love and duty. The War Department employees who uncovered the grave had no idea who Mrs. Mary Randolph was or why she was buried at the cemetery but they were curious and wanted to find out. An article about the discovery was published in the Washington Star newspaper, and soon Mary's descendants were writing in, reintroducing many to a woman who had been very well known up through the Civil War nearly 30 years after her death. They also explained exactly what the inscription, a victim to maternal love and duty, meant on her headstone. Mary Randolph was a cousin of both Arlington Plantation owner George Washington Custis and his wife, Mary Lee Fitzhugh Custis, and she is believed to be the godmother of their daughter, Mary Anna Rudolph Custis, Robert E. Lee's future wife. She came from a well-established Virginia family whose line began when English settler John Rolfe married Pocahontas, the daughter of Powhatan, the paramount native chief in the area, in 1614. Mary was born on August 9, 1762, to Thomas and Anne Randolph at Amphill Plantation in Chesterfield County, Virginia, just south of Richmond, and would grow up on Tuckahoe Plantation. The extended Randolph family was one of the richest and most politically significant families in 18th century Virginia. Mary's father Thomas had been orphaned at a young age and raised by Thomas Jefferson's parents, who were distant relatives. He went on to serve in the Virginia House of Burgesses, the elected portion of Virginia's Colonial General Legislative Assembly, the Revolutionary Conventions of 1775 and 1776, and the Virginia State Legislature. Mary's great-grandmother Jane Randolph completed a cookbook manuscript in 1743 and handed it down to Mary's grandmother, who in turn handed it down to Mary's mother, who ultimately passed it on to Mary. Mary was the oldest of 13 children who were raised in luxury. 
One of her brothers married Thomas Jefferson's daughter Martha and served in the U.S. Congress and as governor of Virginia. One of her sisters was a noted essayist. Another married a future U.S. consul to Spain, the same post that friend of the podcast American scoundrel Dan Sickles would hold in the latter part of the 19th century, and yet another married U.S. founding father, Governor Morris. Again, the family was connected. In her early years, Mary Randolph received a traditional education and was also schooled in both etiquette and household management, skills it was assumed she would need to supervise the active social life of an upper-class household. In December 1780, 18-year-old Mary married David Mead Randolph, a captain in the Continental Army and a tobacco plantation owner. He also happened to be her first cousin, once removed. They would go on to have eight children together, four of whom would survive to adulthood. Much of the land that made up David's 750-acre plantation was swampy, so to avoid the health hazards that kind of environment entails, the family moved to Richmond and built a large brick home dubbed Moldavia at 5th and Main Street, which quickly became the center of activity in the city for the Federalist political party, and the Randolphs established a model for fashionable social life. With Mary's knowledge of food and entertaining, invitations to dine at Moldavia were coveted. Her reputation was so widespread that during a slave insurrection near Richmond in 1800, the movement's leader, the self-proclaimed General Gabriel, announced that when he took the city, he would spare Mary's life so she could become his cook. Around 1795, President George Washington appointed David Randolph the U.S. Marshal of Virginia, and the family's prestige in Richmond continued to grow. David remained in this post until Jefferson was elected the third U.S. President. As a staunch Federalist, David was critical of Jefferson, his second cousin, who removed him from his politically appointed post. After being removed as Marshal, David's plantation and other business ventures began to struggle. The family remained in Richmond, but their fortunes declined and they soon had to sell Moldavia and the plantation. Now, if you will permit me a brief sidebar, there are two conflicting stories as to who purchased Moldavia. One story goes that Joseph Gallego, the owner of the Gallego flour mills, purchased the home. I think the author of that story assumed that I would know who Joseph Gallego was and that I would be familiar with his flour mills. I am not, so I looked him up. Apparently, by the end of the Civil War, the Gallego Mills were the largest of their kind in the world, and Gallego Flour was internationally recognized as some of the best in the world. Before the blockade of the Confederate States of America, this flour was not only shipped all over the United States, but all over Europe and South America, too. When Richmond was burned at the end of the Civil War, renowned photographer Matthew Brady photographed the ruins of the Gallego flour mills, which became one of the iconic images of the defeated South. 
The other story goes that Moldavia was purchased by John Allen, the foster father of Edgar Allan Poe. I did not have to look up who that guy was. Building on her renown as a hostess, Mary Randolph took an unorthodox step for an upper-class woman so that her family could continue to enjoy their accustomed standard of living. In March 1808, she advertised in the Richmond Gazette that she was opening a boarding house for ladies and gentlemen. The boarding house was a success and was almost always filled to capacity. The same year that Mary opened the boarding house, David began working for Henry Heath and his Blackheath coal mines near Midlothian, Virginia. David traveled to England and Wales to study their mining operations and to improve those back home. Always interested in turning a profit, the inventive David also received patents, one in 1815 for his improvements in shipbuilding and candlemaking, and one in 1821 for improvements in drawing liquor. By 1819, the couple retired from the mines and boarding house and moved to Washington, D.C. to live with their son William and his family. It was during this time that Mary compiled all the recipes that she had become so familiar with over the years as she oversaw cooks and slaves preparing food in her home and later her boarding house. And in 1824, she published a cookbook called The Virginia Housewife. The book combined her family recipes passed down through the generations with her own practical experience as keeper of a large establishment. It was 225 pages long and contained nearly 500 recipes. In the book, Mary points out the lack of clear-cut instructions in cookbooks at this time. The difficulties I encountered when I first entered on the duties of housekeeping life, from the want of books sufficiently clear and concise to impart knowledge to a novice, compelled me to study the subject and by actual experiment to reduce everything in the culinary line to proper weights and measures. She also offered three rules for running a household. Let everything be done at the proper time, keep everything in its proper place, and put everything to its proper use. Before The Virginia Housewife was published, wealthy families in the colonial period imported cookbooks from England, which often contained ingredients not available in the Americas. According to historian Synthony Kierner, Randolph presented a Southern, specifically a Virginian, model for Southern readers. Although her explanations of uniquely Southern foods suggests she anticipated an audience beyond her region, Randolph's work appealed largely to the women of the rural South who were the majority of her readers. Her recipes exhibited a uniquely Virginian style, using Virginia produce for dishes influenced by African, Native American, and European food. Her southern favorites included okra, sweet potatoes, biscuits, fried chicken, the first fried chicken recipe published in America, barbecue shoat, which is apparently a young pig, I didn't know that, and lemonade. European influences included gazpacho, ropa vieja, polenta, and macaroni. 
Six curry recipes were included, the first curry recipes published in the United States, which suggests that it was already popular in the region. Specialties from other parts of the U.S. included a recipe called dough nuts, a Yankee cake. And fried chicken wasn't the only never-before-published recipe either. The Virginia housewife also includes the first ice cream recipe published by an American author. With that said, the ice cream mentioned is not one that I think I will ever try. It was oyster ice cream. The recipe tells you to follow the oyster soup recipe, also in the book, make a rich soup, strain it from the oysters, and freeze it. A food historian at Colonial Williamsburg describes 19th century oyster ice cream as a savory food, essentially frozen oyster chowder, that was served unsweetened. Gross! If you have ever tried oyster ice cream and liked it, I would be fascinated to hear from you. It is sometimes assumed that early Americans ate few vegetables and overcooked those they did eat. If that was the case, early cooks did not learn that from Mary. She promoted the charm of gathering and preparing garden-fresh vegetables and stressed repeatedly that veggies should only be cooked to the point of being tender. For its time, the Virginia housewife was surprisingly modern. Absent were the elaborate dishes of 18th century cookbooks and the overwhelming array of food prized by the English aristocracy. Mary believed that the quality of prepared food, not its great variety, was important. She wrote that profusion is not elegance. She also didn't focus solely on the food. In addition to cooking, the book also gave instructions for making important everyday household items such as soap, starch, cologne, and blacking, an old-timey word for shoe polish. The Virginia Housewife was an instant success upon publication and in the 40 years between its first run in the Civil War, the cookbook was reprinted nearly 20 times and is still in print today. Sadly, Mary didn't live long enough to see just how successful her book would become. Shortly after the book came out, Randolph's youngest son Burwell was severely injured after a fall while serving in the Navy. Her cousin George, the owner of Arlington Plantation, allowed Burwell to convalesce at the estate. Mary became her son's full-time caregiver and was soon also living at the plantation, taking care of him. The limited information available about that time of her life indicates that her tireless efforts on her son's behalf took a toll on her own health. After Burwell succumbed to his injury, Mary also passed away, just four years after The Virginia Housewife was published. Mary Randolph died on January 23, 1828 in Washington, D.C. She was 65 years old. In life, Mary loved the view looking out from the steps of the Custis Mansion down the hill to the Potomac River and the District of Columbia beyond. When it became clear that she did not have much longer to live, she selected a place near those steps to be buried so that the view would be hers forever. Today, 
Mary's burial site is located in Section 2, Grave S-6, and a historical marker has been placed next to the grave site, recognizing her as the first person buried at Arlington. Southern cookbooks similar to the Virginia housewife were published in the years following her death. Two of the most notable were 1839's The Kentucky Housewife and 1847's The Carolina Housewife. In 1982, James Beard, a pioneering television chef, praised Mary as a far-seeing culinary genius in a Richmond newspaper. He was particularly impressed by her use of tomatoes, writing, At a time when few people thought of tomatoes at all, she provided recipes for tomato ketchup, tomato marmalade, and tomato soy. According to culinary historian Andrew Smith, Randolph's wide range of tomato recipes set the standard for tomato cookery over the next three decades. This all seems like high praise, but as someone who does not like tomatoes at all, it just kind of makes me say, meh. I'm sure I'll hear about that from Mrs. Ghosts of Arlington and my mom, both tomato connoisseurs themselves. In 1999, the state of Virginia erected a historical marker in Randolph's honor near her birthplace in Chesterfield County, and in 2009, she was posthumously honored as one of the Library of Virginia's Virginia Women in History. Finally, in a 2014 essay for National Geographic, Spanish restaurateur José Andrés cited Mary as one of his influences. Andres serves Randolph's gazpacho at his America Eats Tavern and believes this gazpacho recipe demonstrates just how far back the notion of the United States as a cultural melting pot goes. If you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, there are pictures related to every episode on the website www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. You can help others learn about the podcast by leaving a five-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you really want to make my day, refer the show to a friend. And remember, fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal.